From a safe social distance somewhere deep inside Fibush Media World News Headquarters in Rochester, New York, it's the Top of the Tower podcast. We are brought to you by Yellow Tech. For broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators, Yellow Tech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports, clear audio from Yellow Tech's IXM recording microphone, which you're hearing right now, and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. And by Shively Labs, a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. We are back with what I hope will be a new and fairly consistent fall season of the Top of the Tower podcast as things start to get back to something that vaguely resembles normalcy here. For our first edition back, we have a little surprise that was also sort of a little gift from the pandemic, because as you'll hear in our interview today, the pandemic gave one of our good friends, just about 60 miles to the west of us, an opportunity to finish a project he had been working on for a long time. That is Steve Seashon, the historian of Buffalo Broadcasting, and a Buffalo broadcaster himself with a long career that's included several stints at WBEN, where he served, among other things, as program director. He was also involved in the late-lamented WNSA Sports Radio back in the day for Adelphia and Empire Sports and many other ventures as well. He currently is a columnist for the Buffalo News, writing about Buffalo history. And he is just out with a new book that he spent the last few months working diligently on. It is the first volume of his uh, History of a Century of Buffalo Broadcasting, covering the years 1920 to 1970. I got together with Steve and sat down in the front seat of my car with some airplanes flying overhead near the Buffalo Airport in Cheektowaga to have a conversation about the book, about Buffalo history, and about where he goes next. You have written five books before this. How did it take you this long to get to the obvious one, which is the comprehensive history of the first 50 years of Buffalo broadcasting? Well, you know, there are a lot of broadcasters, a lot of people that uh, that we know who have been talking about writing this book for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, John Zach, for one, you know, he was talking about writing this book for years. Um, I actually, Marty Binias and I had talked about writing this book six or seven years ago, and we were going to do it together. Um, it, it, it's an awful lot to take on, uh, especially when you care about a subject as deeply as we care about radio. Um, and being laid off during the, the pandemic uh, really afforded me an opportunity to almost make this my, my full-time job for six months. Uh, when you think about that, that this was my full-time job, and as a radio guy, a full-time job means, you know, 70 hours a week. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, there was a lot that went into, this would be a 10-year project if it wasn't a full-time project. So uh, I, I'm just happy with, with uh, you know, the, the way that it came out. And the uh, just the amount of information, um, publishing it myself, I didn't have to take any shortcuts or, you know, there wasn't somebody telling me this could only be 200 pages. Um, across 432 pages, I think we were able to stick in a lot of photos and tell a lot of stories. So, You have done kind of pieces of this before. You have uh, your, your book about Irv, who is, you know, the, the one-name anchorman of, of, of Buffalo TV You've done that piece of it. You've you've kind of touched around some some corners of it. How do you take in this huge span that starts with experimental stuff in the 1920s and then goes through what was probably one of the the larger near monopoly broadcast operations anywhere in the country in the form of of Buffalo Broadcasting? 
in the 30s and then into the birth of TV and the growth of Top 40 Radio. Where do you even begin? Was there was there a structure that you thought you would put on this from the beginning? For me, the, the timeline is the only way to make sense of this. Um, you know, I have been, I write in the in the foreword of the book that I've been writing this book, you know, my literally my entire life. I've been watching TV and listening to radio my whole life. Uh, you know, I started working in radio at the age of 15 and loving to hear the stories of the of the guys who'd been around from, from that very early time. And, um, you know, so... I've also been a collector of broadcast ephemera and photos and, you know, bumper stickers and everything imaginable. Um, and through the years of trying to trying to um, uh, manage that collection, how do you keep things? Do you, do you put them by radio station? Do you put them by uh, television stage? Do you put them by... Uh, I have a picture of of uh, Danny Nevereth. Well, that should go in the WKBW bin, except it's from you know Oldies One Hundred Four, or maybe it's from WBNY. And so you know, these are all things that I've struggled with. You know, telling these stories in sort of a concise way um, for a, for a long, long time. Uh, we are in the part of Buffalo that's near an airport. In yes. case you're hearing me, <laughs> we're in lovely uh, downtown Chictawaga. Um, but you know, so for me, the timeline made the most sense. Um, and, uh, you know, there are places in the book, um, where, you know, when you tell the story of Danny Nevereth, you, you do go outside of the timeline a little bit in the pages where you're talking about him, but basically it, it falls within, uh, you know, um, it's very linear in the way that, uh, and to me that, 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 again, that was the only way to tell it. The process of actually collecting this memorabilia, is everything in here stuff that you already had? Did you go out and look for, for more material on top of what was already in your very extensive? I've, I've been up in your attic. I've seen pieces of this. Was there more beyond that that you felt you needed to, to add to this that you didn't already have? A lot of these stories, um, not a lot, but there are a lot of things that have been written already. Um, you know, I write a, a weekly column for the Buffalo News uh, about Buffalo history. Uh, Buffalo pop culture history and radio and TV has been a big part of that. Um, so in the past, maybe I've gone out and sought out a, a photo or something to add. But um, I mean, I, I really I had no intention of having this book in my hands right now um, before the end of March earlier this year. And we all know where we were. Uh, we have been since that time. So there really was no outside of my house. There wasn't any going to some uh, vast archive. There wasn't even calling up my pal Scott and saying, Scott, what photos do you have? It was basically what I had uh, on hand, which is a, you know, which is a lot. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot of, of stuff that I've collected and people have trusted me with and people have handed me through the years. Um, and there are some places where, boy, I wish I would have had that image or, um, but I, but I also wasn't, um, you know, in doing, um, a, a project like this, there might be, a, a an idea where we're only going to use the best photos. We're only going to use a photo where we have a first generation copy and it's a 600 DPI scan and so on and so on and so on. Um, and, uh, I mean, I made a judgment call on some of those. Some of these photos you might run across of the more than 600 in there. You might, that's a pretty lousy photo, but I thought it was an important image to share. Um, so there's some of that balancing act too. And I, I mean, I'm pretty happy with the way that balancing act came out. Um, I would love for all of them to be great first quality, but you know, some of those things don't exist anymore, especially when you talk about the twenties and thirties, some of those photos are, are, are long gone. Um, and frankly, all we have is, you know, what was left on the microfilm in the, in the library. So 
I've always felt maybe maybe this is just a, a grass is always greener kind of envy from from 60 miles out to the east, but it's always seemed to me like Buffalo, for a market the size that it is or the size that it was, uh, has always punched significantly above its its weight class in terms of sort of the amount of, of broadcast history that has happened here in terms of some of the names that have come out. And, you know, there, if you, even if you're not from Buffalo, there are names certainly that people will recognize in there, like Foster Brooks, who, by the way, came from Rochester, as you as you note in there from WHEC. Um, Jackson Armstrong, Jefferson K. What is it about Buffalo that has that has made people here as passionate as they seem to be about their history and about the history of of, of their broadcast uh, legacy here? Well, I, I think, and and I think that's uh, over the time that I've worked in broadcasting, over the almost thirty years that I've been a, a part of the world of, of Buffalo broadcasting. We've kind of seen that diminish and evaporate. Um, you know, when I, through the 80s and early 90s, um, Buffalo was still, uh, uh, it may have been your third spot. If you were a television news reporter, it may have been your, your second or your third stop. Um, now it's more likely to be your first or second stop um, along your career. And I think part of, um, part of being a... Aside from just having uh, someone with a little more experience on their third stop, they're a little further along in life. They're thinking about, gee, maybe I need to get married. Maybe in Buffalo is a great place to raise a family, just like Rochester is. It's a great place to raise a family. And you look around and you're like, boy, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be moving around. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll find a, a Buffalo guy or a Buffalo gal. To, uh, and that's how a lot of our great broadcasters um, wound up here long term, even if they weren't necessarily, um, you know, a reporter for the rest of their life, they, they made up part of that community. Um, and in the years before that, it's difficult for most of us to imagine that, that Buffalo, um, you know, if not in our lifetimes, in our parents' lifetimes, uh, you know, was a, a top 20, certainly a top 30 market. Um, so it was a, a place to be a place to go to um and that goes back to the vaudeville days when it was an even larger market buffalo was the the place to stop for uh for sporting events for vaudeville uh, anybody who was on a train between chicago and new york you stopped in buffalo you made a couple of bucks before you got back on the train you have major league baseball <laughs> there, there, there was major league baseball in the and you know uh the federal league and and before then you know in the in the teens and in the 1880s uh the national league was here so but, you know, um, there's just that strong tradition and people know that, you know, Buffalo Bob Smith was here, a, a Buffalo boy was was born and raised here. And they know about um, they know that uh, you mentioned Foster Brooks and they know that that boss hog <laughs> grew up in Buffalo. And these are all things that that people, um, at least in a previous generation, sort of carried around uh, uh, very proudly. The the guy from the Allstate commercials, you know, who's putting out his good hands. Yeah, that's a Buffalo guy. I remember him from WBEN. He gave my mom, a, you know, a, a, a bar of soap at, at Hangarers one time. Uh, so there is that that longstanding tradition. And I think we, we've lost a little of that, uh, being generations removed. But I it's also with the the new buffalo i don't like that term but i'll just use it <laughs> quickly here the, the the buffalo that's sort of turned a corner 
and is now um, a little bit more excited about its history is looking at some of these stories and going, wow, we really did have this uh, tremendous impact uh, in the world of, of media and entertainment that we didn't know existed. So uh, it's kind of been my pleasure to be able to, uh, to guide people through that. Um, and again, in this book, it's sort of all right there in, in, <laughs> in one place, you know. Is there a balance that you try to strike in writing this between appealing to us, the people who, who you know are going to eat up every tiny little detail of, of, oh, WMAK and WKEN merged and they towed the transmitter building across the Niagara River in the winter and moved it to Grand Island and all of those details that, that you and I could talk about for days and then the casual reader who might just want to read something about Buffalo history that they might not have known? You know, I, 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 I think it's a point where my training as a, as a radio journalist spending, you know, 25 years working in radio and having to, um, take a, a big story, a big theme, um, a big event, which might get, you know, thousands of words in a newspaper or a two and a half minute package on television. And I have to boil it into 35 seconds. And when you're doing that, you tend to try and give a, a flavor of things. If there's an important number, you stick it in there, but you can't necessarily, when I'm talking about the county budget and I've got 30 seconds to talk about the county budget, you've really got to make it uh, sing in 30 seconds and give people a, an idea of what's going on. So that that's, that's the idea here. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's not a laundry list of, of call letters and people who have worked at radio stations, which I think some people would like that. I think we would like that. I would, I would read that book, but I don't know that there are other people who would. Um, so, um, you know, I like finding pictures where there are a bunch of people in there and, you know, to be able to talk about, um, some of the folks and briefly mention them. Um, but I want to tell stories that are, are, are sort of, um, uh, you know, appeal to a wider audience as well. So it is a, it is a balancing act, but sometimes I, I think it's, um, you know, when you can find the story of an engineer who's worked somewhere for 45 years and there's a great story about that engineer. Well, good. I'm glad that I can put that in there because to say that somebody was an engineer for 45 years and they built the tower and, and to us, that's a, a tremendous story. And I love hearing those stories. I just, you know, I, I don't want people's eyes to gloss over on page, uh, you know, 133 before they get to page 430, uh, 432, you know. I find, you know, like you, I've been studying and, and writing the history of broadcasting in Rochester since I was a teenager. And every now and again, I will still come across something that I didn't realize I didn't know. And I love those moments when I can pick it out and say, oh, wow, that happened then and I never knew about it till now or this, you know, this piece of history existed and I, I wasn't aware that it was there. Were there any moments like that as you were as you were going through the stuff you already had where you, you found something that you didn't realize that, that you knew? The one thing that I uh, the one place where I had to do a considerable amount of research and not necessarily for this book, but over the last year or two, uh, because I've written about it. Um, in my stories for the Buffalo News is the very early days of, of Buffalo Radio. And, um, you know, researching um, the early 20s has, has never been something that was particularly appealing to me, uh, you know, researching radio in that, in that time. Uh, and I just assumed, like most people, like, oh, Buffalo Radio started when WGR signed on in 1922. Uh, and... You know, and then I heard about WWT, which signed on a few weeks before WGR, and I wrote a story about that 
uh, for the newspaper a couple of years ago. And some people are, you know, are, are angry. And some, you know, these historians who have been writing for years, Buffalo Radio started in 1922. Um, and, uh, and I knew about the fact that there was a, a, a broadcast that happened in Buffalo um, on the same day that radio started on KDKA, uh, November 2nd, 1920. This is when radio began. Um, and, you know, doing research on, on both Pittsburgh and Buffalo that day, um, it was the same experience. Um, you know, I, Pittsburgh and KDKA as the first uh was really as much about marketing for um you know for the company that was trying to sell radio tubes as it was for um you know history and there's tremendously buffalo at least and there are several other cities as well that uh the uh, amateur radio association uh, all around the country uh came together and said you know hey we should try and broadcast election results so that everybody gets them sort of that that ham radio spirit that still exists and uh, the Buffalo Evening News had a special phone line installed so that they could call directly to uh, to uh, Mr. Clink's house, who lived on uh, Parade Street in a spot which is now covered by the 33 Expressway in, in downtown Buffalo. But, um, you know, so, I mean, people had the same experience. And uh, and I think that's that's really great that that Buffalo was a history maker. And again, I don't know. Uh, how many people really uh, care about that or get excited about that uh, outside of us? I know everybody listening is excited about that kind of thing. But to me, that that finding that sort of uh, those sorts of stories and being able to tell a story like that and, and kind of grabbing Buffalo's rightful spot in history is uh, it w- was kind of a one of the important things for me in, in walking away from this book, for sure. We've reached the point as, you know, as, as the industry is celebrating the centennial this year, whether it's the centennial of KDKA or of WWJ or KNX or any of the early contenders to this, we've reached the point, I realize, where these early days are now beyond the reach of anybody's living memory. And that was not the case. I mean, even even in the 1990s, when I was doing radio history stuff at, at WBZ in Boston, you know, there were still plausibly people who could have been listening that night who might have been tuned in when WBZ went on the air in 1921. That's no longer the case. How does it change that now that there's nobody alive that we can go to for anything really before the, the 50s? Yeah, you know, and to me, it's, um, you know, thinking about that marketing a little bit, too. Um, when this Charles Clink fellow, who, who was really Buffalo's first broadcaster, Buffalo's first DJ, you read it. He was playing records between giving election results. So he's Buffalo's first radio newsman and Buffalo's first DJ. And he was a teacher, an electronics teacher at a high school. And that's why he had all this. And he was part of a very wealthy family. He's part of a meatpacking family, which means they had a little extra money to spend so he could have this $2,000 set up in his attic. Um, but when he died in 1978, it wasn't even mentioned that he was a broadcaster or involved in broadcasting or a ham radio operator or any of the things that, that, you know, you would have hoped or expected. So, um, you know, the fact that there aren't, that many of the things that occurred weren't remembered. And then even the things that were remembered are now, you know, secondhand memories. It, uh, it does make it, uh, it makes it difficult to talk about. And I just can't believe that it's difficult to talk about um, Clint Buhlman now 
I mean, when we first started, we were talking about the early, everybody knew who Clint Buhlman was. Uh, I'm a guy with a gray beard now, uh, you know, writing big books. And, you know, Clint Buhlman retired two months before I was born. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's just part of, you know, the beat goes on. But uh, it is difficult, and it becomes difficult, and, and something that a very short time ago wasn't history, it was still something that was living, uh, is now history. So to kind of capture that on the edge of it and make sure that, you know, there's some piece of the living still going on in this book as it was written, uh, and it's not written 50 years from now, I guess is, uh, is another one of those uh, kind of accomplishments that I really didn't think of as, as I was sitting there uh, manically writing which brings us to the challenge that we were talking about over over breakfast a little while ago about writing volume two, where you are dealing then, you know, not only with history that living people have experienced, but history that you've been part of uh, as somebody who has worked at WBEN, who has worked at Adelphia Cable, who's worked at uh, the late lamented WNSA Sports Radio. When the time comes to circle around to that, what what are your plans at this point for volume two? Well, you know, my initial thought, you know, when during the course of the pandemic, I'm, I'm going to write the, the history of Buffalo broadcasting. It's called 100 Years of Buffalo Broadcasting, and that was the book that I was going to write. Um, but there was just too much stuff there. Um, so volume two, uh, you know, could it be the next the, the next 50 years, including where we are right now? It, it could be. But I think maybe a focus on the 70s and 80s might be uh, might be the better way to handle it. Um, I think that um, it's just uh, I think history ne- generally needs a little time to to settle. You know, um, it's difficult to write. You know, journalism is the first draft of history, and that's. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's true in some respects. Uh, it's difficult to write the first draft and lay that down as the book <laughs> when nobody has written about, uh, you know, the events of the last uh, six months as a, you know, in a, in a journalism textbook yet. Uh, you could write a journal. You could write a full book about journalism uh, in the last six months uh, between the pandemic and protests. Uh, and to me, that's almost worthy of a book on its own. I don't know if writing the history of it in the midst of it is really something that uh, that I have the, the chops or the ability to do or something that I would even want to do, um, because it could very well end up being silly reading it, uh, you know, two years from now, let alone 30 years from now. So um, I think you've got to let things sort of uh, mellow out and uh, and age, and then figure out where where the history uh, takes you. So uh, the seventies and eighties might be the the next logical uh, next logical place. Uh, I, I like to think that you know all important broadcasting ended in Buffalo in nineteen ninety three because it's when I became involved. After nineteen ninety three, there was nothing worth watching or listening to uh, after they let this uh, schmo in. So. Um, Maybe that's a good place to end it. I don't know. <laughs> there is. I mean, seriously, there is a dividing line somewhere in, in the mid to late 90s as consolidation took hold. And, you know, as you went, I I remember, I forget if you were the one who showed me around, but I remember visiting WBEN when it was still in its ancestral 1960s era home inside the Channel 4 building in North Buffalo. And it felt like a radio station from maybe the 70s or early 80s at that point as its own unique standalone entity. And then within a few years after that, all of a sudden, everybody it had been competing with over the years, WGR and WKBW, were all 
eventually under the same ownership and the same roof. And, and certainly that has dramatically changed how our business has worked. Is there, you know, that feels like kind of a dividing line right in the middle of that second 50 years, at least to me. I think, uh, and I was there at the, at the, uh, sort of in the midst of all of those things happening. I remember the, I was the, the nighttime board op at WBEN, uh, shortly after, um, rules changed at the federal level and somebody could own more than one AM and FM station in a, in a city. And, uh, boy, did that make a lot of people start to salivate about buying up radio stations and, and, uh, it made, it, 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 it added, it added zeros to the worth and value of these radio stations and longtime local guys who really loved being radio station owners all of a sudden decided that they'd really love to be a rich guy living in Florida instead of, of being a radio station owner in Buffalo. And, uh, the owner of WBEN, Larry Levitt, who was a, a really good guy and actually, you know, he sold BEN and eventually owned a, a magazine here in Buffalo, owned Buffalo Spree. Um, he, in the middle of the night was walking through the radio station with, uh, investors <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and kind of telling me, yeah, don't be telling people that you saw me in here tonight. I was the only guy at the, at the station at that point in the, in the building. And, um, and very quickly, uh, as an intern for WBEN news, um, you know, it was important that I would get to, if I was at a scene first, I had to call back and, and tell the station that I was there first so that we could write in a promo that WBEN was first on the scene. Where was WGR? And, and there were these promos that would go back and forth. Um, 10 years later, I was the WBEN program director and my office was closer to the WGR control room than it was to the WBEN control room in the large conglomerate at, uh, at Entercom. So there definitely was a different flavor and a different feeling. Um, and, uh, you know, as a, as a young person first getting into the business, I hated WGR. I hated everything about them. Didn't want anything to do with them. We're better than them. It was, uh, it, it was like a sporting event, you know, and, and obviously a lot of that is, uh, is gone. Um, you know, there isn't even, you know, so much of that spirit, so many of the things that, that made radio fun, uh, fun to be a part of, fun to listen to, uh, kind of evaporated with, uh, with that lack of, um, um, you know, just people at each other's throats all the time. So, yeah, I, I, and I don't, and, and there isn't the, um, uh, people don't have the, just changing, um, the way the world changes, you know, um, people used to feel about, uh, which radio station they listen to the way they might feel about CNN or Fox news right now, or MSNBC and Fox news. You got to know something about a person from the radio station that they listen to. And I don't think that's true anywhere anymore. Are you, are you KB or are you YSL? Right. Yeah. Or, or anything. And that said something about you, right. Or are you BEN or, or KB or, you know, and, and, um, so yeah, I, it, it I think for now, maybe the, <laughs> again, like I said, I, my, my entry into the world of broadcasting might be the appropriate, uh, end date for, uh, for, for the next book. One way or another, there will be a volume two though. I, yeah, well, you know, uh, I, I promised, uh, uh, the complete history of, of Parkside, which I wrote in 2008 or nine, uh, there needs to be a second volume of that too. So, uh, the, the great thing about writing a book is that it's not the end. Writing a book makes you sort of the, uh, 
uh, in a vacuum, it sort of makes you the expert. So all of a sudden, people start sending you things, and you get all this tremendous new information um, from writing the the history of Parkside. Uh, and people want to share things, and memories are are lit up, and they bring you things. So it it, it helps you write uh, volume two. So volume two is definitely on the way. Um, just don't uh, <laughs> don't be looking for it in stores by this holiday season. I'll tell you that for sure. For podcast listeners looking to get their hands on volume one, how do they obtain it from you? BuffaloStories.com. Right at the uh, the top of the page, you can click and uh, read a little bit about the book. And actually, you can read a little bit about Buffalo Broadcasting, too, uh, if you want on the website. But BuffaloStories.com is where you order the book. And if you if they tell you they heard about it on top of the Tower podcast, they'll get a hearty, hand, a hearty handshake and a smile. And... Yeah, well, you know what? Yeah, maybe we'll... Uh, if, if you... If you mention Scott Feibush, if you enter code Scott Feibush in the, uh, no, yeah, make sure you mention it though, because that would be, I would be uh, interested to know. And who knows, there might be something extra in it for you. I'll get something that Steve doesn't want in his attic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it'll be a Norm Nathan style prize. I'll go around the, uh, I'll go around the office and jam things into an envelope and send it your way. A Larry Glick pen. Maybe there's a Larry <laughs> Glick pen in there for you. <laughs> And that's that's a story I need to write someday is is being in those transition years at WBZ and, and observing some of that close up because it was very much that same sort of change happening, even if we didn't realize it at the time. Steve C. Sean, thank you so much for spending some time with us. You bet. Here's an elbow bump for you. All right. <laughs> and my thanks again to Steve C. Sean for taking time to sit down with us. Again, you can uh, order your copy of the first volume of A Century of Buffalo Broadcasting at buffalostories.com. You can also find his book about Irv, Buffalo's Anchorman, right there as well. And you can find much more from us, of course, at fibush.com. We're back with Tower Side of the Week installments coming to you every Friday. And, of course, Northeast Radio Watch every Monday. And we encourage you to take advantage of your opportunity to subscribe uh, at our former subscription rates before they go up at the end of the year. You can find all those details at fibush.com. Thanks again for being with us. We will be back soon with another edition of the Top of the Tower podcast brought to you by Shively Labs, a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. And by Yellow Tech. For broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators, Yellow Tech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports, clear audio from Yellow Tech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. I'm Scott Feibush. We'll see you again on the Top of the Tower podcast.